The doctrine of scripture that we're going to explore and consider this afternoon is the doctrine of infant baptism. And in connection to that, I'd like to read two parts of two passages from scripture, one from the Old Testament Exodus 14 and then 1 Corinthians 10. So let's begin with Exodus chapter 14. And that's of course where uh, the people of Israel are now wandering uh, in the wilderness and coming up to the edge of the Red Sea. And Pharaoh's army is behind them, and they cry out to God. They say, wouldn't it have been better for us to just have died in Egypt than to die here? And, of course, the Lord God, uh, through Moses, does a powerful and awesome act. So we'll pick it up then in verse 19, and we'll read through to 25. Actually, we'll read to 29. And the angel of the Lord, who, angel of God, who went before the camp of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud went before them and stood behind them. So it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of the Israelites. Thus it was a cloud and darkness to the one, and it gave light by night to the other, so that the one did not come near the other all that night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night, and made the sea into dry land, and the waters were divided. So the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, and the waters a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. And the Egyptians pursued and went after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. Now it came to pass in the morning watch that the Lord looked down upon the army of the Israelites, or sorry, of the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud, and he troubled the army of the Egyptians. And he took off their chariot wheels so that they drove them with difficulty. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from the face of Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians, on their chariots and on their horsemen. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and when the morning appeared, the sea returned to its full depth, while the Egyptians were fleeing into it. So the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. Then the waters returned and covered the chariots, the horsemen, and all the army of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them, not so much as one of them remained. But the children of Israel had walked on dry land in the midst of the sea, and the waters were a wall to them on their right and on their left. Let us now consider a parallel passage of sorts in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where the Red Sea is mentioned in connection to baptism. We'll read until verse 6. There we read, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that, our, that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for, that, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples, to the intent that we should not lust after evil things, as they also lusted. This is the word of the Lord. So in connection to that, let us read our confession 
a summary of the doctrine of baptism, infant baptism, found in our book of praise. And the confession, of course, is the Heidelberg Catechism. It's Lord's Day 27, and the question and answer is 74. So we'll read that question and answer together. So the question is, should infants too be baptized? And the answer, yes, infants as well as adults belong to God's covenant and congregation. Through Christ's blood, the redemption from sin and the Holy Spirit who works faith are promised to them no less than to adults. Therefore, by baptism as sign of the covenant, they must be incorporated into the Christian church and distinguished from the children of unbelievers. This was done in the old covenant by circumcision, in place of which baptism was instituted in the new covenant. After the message on this summary of the doctrine of infant baptism, we will sing from hymn 85, the stanzas 1, 2, and 3. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, I imagine many of you have read or know, have heard of the late R.C. Sproul. And maybe also you've watched a a video of R.C. Sproul in discussion with John MacArthur on the doctrine of baptism. John MacArthur in this, it's on the YouTube clip or YouTube video, uh, is defending the credo-baptist position, which is believer's baptism. And of course, R.C. Sproul is defending infant baptism, which we call pedo-baptism. And if you remember this video, if you've watched this video, when R.C. speaks, the late R.C. Sproul speaks, he begins by stating an important fact, and that is this, that he does not see John MacArthur as a kind of second-rate Christian. He sees John MacArthur as a brother in the faith. He says, if there's anybody I want to be in a foxhole with, it would be John MacArthur, defending the faith against liberal and secularism that has entered into the evangelical church of America. He said, John MacArthur is a strong defender of justification by faith alone, the the five solas of the Reformation. And I would say, not only John MacArthur, but we have the Begg and the Alistair Begg, and we have Tim Challies, and we have... Um, John Piper and Paul Washer, and we have a lot of these gentlemen who are proclaiming the full gospel of salvation, who we see as brothers in the faith, and yet they hold to a different view of, of baptism. And another thing that R.C. Sproul pulls out in this discussion is this, that the Baptists are trying to understand Scripture to the glory of God. They're not being malicious when they defend a credo-baptist position, that they feel as they understand Scripture, as they exegete Scripture, as they interpret Scripture, their hermeneutic of Scripture is one that shines towards credo-baptism. On the other hand, those in the Reformed camp like us are saying the same. We want to do what God desires of us. We believe that as we interpret Scripture, actually, that this brings more glory to God to hold to the position of infant baptism. And so we have these two camps. 
Now, I think it's very important as we enter into this discussion, realizing that we are struggling with the same truths and trying to understand God's plan from Scripture, that we understand this, that our view of baptism is inseparably connected to three things. Our view of baptism is inseparably connected to how we see the unity between the Old and the New Testament. That's important. How we understand the, the, the unity between the Old Covenant and the New Testament and the New Covenant in, allows us to interpret or understand the call to baptize our infants, the infants of believers. Our view of baptism is inseparably connected to how we understand the church, the ecclesia, in both testaments. And the question that we have to answer when we understand the church as it transcends both the Old and New Testament is this. Is the church a New Testament phenomenon? Or does Christ's church transcend both testaments as one body of believers? How you answer that question allows you to answer the next question, what do we do with our children? And the third question that we, that baptism is inseparably connected to is our view of children with respect to the church. Are they part of the household of faith? Are they members of it? And so those three realities, um, as we understand Scripture and understand those questions, allow us to inform our view or informs our view on baptism. This afternoon, I want to consider uh, baptism through the corporate lens through our unity as one body of believers that transcends the ages between both testaments. We are one church, one faith, one baptism. And that's in connection to the text I read from 1 Corinthians 13, sorry, 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 6. And the question that we're going to pose this afternoon is this, what can we learn about infant baptism at the Red Sea? The Red Sea, of course, is an Old Testament story. It's the Exodus story. It's an awesome story. But can we learn anything about infant baptism at the Red Sea? And I think we can. And the first thing that we're going to learn, there's three things, but the first thing that we're going to learn about infant baptism, as we understand it already at the edge of the sea, is this, that there is, in fact, only one holy people of God. There's only ever been one universal church. We're going to consider that first. So we have our text before us, it's, which is 1 Corinthians 10. That's what we're going to look at this afternoon. And, and Paul begins by saying this. He says, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now, a little bit of context is important. What, what's Paul trying to get at here as he writes this to the Corinthians? Well, I think as you read through 1 Corinthians, you realize at least two um, important facts that Paul, Paul's trying to broach, or two realities that Paul's trying to reach out to and, 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 and teach the Corinthians in. And one of them is unity. That there was division in the church, and it seemed to be a, a, a strain that ran through all the, the epistles. That there was disunity and a call to be united as one people, as one family, as one church, as one body is paramount. And that's what he's getting at. And 1 Corinthians 12 has a beautiful picture of what that looks like. 
But he's also trying to address another problem in the church. It's the problem of Christian liberty. How much freedom does a Christian have? And it seemed that in Corinth, they were taking this freedom to an extreme and there was sexual immorality in the church, even in families. And so their immorality was something that burdened, of course, um, Paul's heart as as it grieves the Holy Spirit. And Paul addresses this quite forcefully in this letter. It's in the connection to this immorality, to this sin that they were living, supposedly in their Christian liberty, that Paul says, I do not want you to be ignorant. Of what? Well, he's showing them that he did not want them to be ignorant of the fact that even though they may have been baptized, even though they may have celebrated Holy Communion, that does not exempt them from God's wrath against their sin. They cannot continue to live in sin and think that holy baptism and the holy communion will somehow like a magical guard protect them from God's judgment if they continue in sin. It's a picture Paul takes from the Old Testament. He says just as the people of Israel enjoyed or experienced a kind of a proto-baptism as they walked through the Red Sea, as they drank from the rock, and as they ate the manna, as pictures of of the communion that you have with Christ, just because they have this kind of sacramental reality happening in the Old Testament, this beautiful thing that happened to Israel did not protect them from God's wrath in the wilderness. They were still under God's judgment, and many, we read, were scattered. And so it's in that context that he is dressing the people In Corinth, he's using sacramental language that is derived from the Old Testament to teach his New Testament church to to take up, you know, spiritual arms and serve the Lord. As one author writes, Paul energetically combats a materialistic and superstitious estimation of baptism and the Lord's Supper, which allows the recipients to be free from any possibility of divine wrath. And he's trying to contend with this reality. Baptism and Holy Supper do not save you. They're awesome means of grace, but they're still signs. And they're seals, but they do not ultimately save you. So he's calling out faith. He's calling them to faith. So that's the context. But what's the content? What, what, what is Paul saying? And Paul's answering this question. With the New Testament Greek believer, these were, not, these were Gentile believers. These were not mostly Jews. There were very few probably Jews in Corinth. These were mostly Gentile believers. Do the New Testament Gentile Greek believer or the New Testament Dutch believer or the New Testament African believer or the New Testament believer that's not Jewish, do they have any connection with God's people in the Old Covenant? Or, as some people confess, and especially this is the dispensational view, and dispensationalists are all holding to a credo-baptist position, are there two peoples of God? The Old Testament people of God and the New Testament people of God. The Old Testament people of God being ethnic Jews bound to uh, the ground, promised land and blessings of um, 
of great blessings if they walked in obedience. That was the earthly people of God. Those were the Old Testament believers. Whereas the New Testament believers, that's us. We are the kind of the heavenly people of God. We have our church in heaven. We're bound to Jesus. We have, we have received the Holy Spirit now, they say. And, and so God is dealing with us differently than with the Old Testament. So what God did in the Old Testament is closed at the beginning of the New Testament because now God deals with his people differently because there are two, two different groups of people. And we say, well, that's not what Paul says here, and therefore he doesn't say that anywhere. Because look at what Paul's saying. He says, I do not want you to be unaware that all our, that little possessive pronoun there, our, all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. What Paul is doing, and we need to understand this very clearly, he's connecting the New Testament believer to the Old Testament believer. And he says to us that they are our fathers. We're Gentile Christians. They're still our fathers. Regardless of your ethnicity, if you are in Jesus Christ, your foreparents are Old Testament believers. The Exodus is still our story. That's why we teach it to our children. The Old Testament is still our story. And we know this to be true. This is a theme that runs right through Scripture because we understand the Scripture covenantally, that this is, of course, our story. And therefore, it's not something um, surprising for Paul to say that Abraham is our father in the faith. He is the father, we read in Romans 10, 4, 4, verse 11. He is the father of all who believe. Not just the Israelites at the Red Sea, but us here today. Galatians 3, verse 29 says, if you, are, if you are Christ, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. We're all Abraham's offspring because we're bound together in that one body of believers. So we have the same father. We also have the same covenant promise. The covenant promise that came to Abraham, that through you all the nations will be blessed. The covenant promise that came to Abraham that I will be your father and the father of your children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren is a promise that comes to us in the New Testament. So we read in Acts chapter 2, verse 39, for the promises to you and to your children and to all that are far off. This is covenantal language, showing that we're connecting God's promises from the old into the new. His covenant of favor just keeps on going. Thirdly, I think we need to understand this unity between the Old Testament and the New Testament is realized in this, that we both have the same way to salvation. It's not wise to pull apart the old from the new and say, well, they were dealt with differently than in the New Testament. No, we both have the same way to salvation, which is by faith. You're all going to answer that anyway. It's by faith. The righteous will live by faith. Habakkuk 2 verse 4. And then in Romans. 116. The righteous will live by faith. Abram was declared righteous on account of his faith. Or we can read in Hebrews, this, Hebrews does this beautiful job of just uniting both the testaments into one. 
And he said these, these so-called heroes of the faith, those who have walked before us, eagerly expecting Jesus to come. We read in Hebrews 11, verse 26, speaking of Moses now, he regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. He was longing for the same person we're longing for. His name is Jesus Christ. The Old Testament believers were living in this expectation of the Messiah coming and we live in the reality that he has come and he will come again. We're united in Christ. Or as Blaise Pascal, a theologian from the 1600s, wrote, Jesus Christ, whom both Testament regard, the Old Testament as its hope, the New as its model, and both, he says, as their center. That's the center of the Old Testament is Jesus. The center of the New Testament is Jesus because the center of God's plan of redemption is Jesus. So the sacramental character of our text of baptism and Holy Communion in the wilderness and at the Red Sea all point to Jesus Christ. And it says that they were baptized into Moses. And that's because Moses is a prefiguration, you would call a type of Christ. And so closely connected were they to Moses. Moses led them through the Red Sea. They were kind of bound to Moses as they passed through the Red Sea under the cloud. Before the fire, they were passing through the Red Sea with Moses. And that's why Paul says they were baptized into Moses. But we have someone greater than Moses here. His name, of course, is Christ. And so now we're corporately united, not into Moses, but we're corporately united into Christ so that Paul can write in Ephesians 4, verse 5, there is but one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, our forefathers and us together. So we have this corporate identity. And and I think if you understand that context... And how rich that is and how comprehensive those promises are to God's people. It's not hard for us to answer the second question, which is my second point. How did God deal with the children of believers in the Old Testament? And he, does he deal with them the same today? And I'm going to argue that there is only one way that God has dealt with the children of believers in both Testaments. There's only been one way that God has dealt with the children of believers, and that is this, to love them. To love them. 1 Corinthians 12, 10 again. I'll read it again. Moreover, brother, I do not want you to be unaware that our forefathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. All, all, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud, in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food. All drank the same spiritual drink. I'm emphasizing the word all. Because the children were connected to the people of Israel. They were all baptized. They all drank. This is sacramental language. And here's the question. Did the children experience a sacramental privilege that allowed them to go from death, which would be if Egypt killed them, to life, which was the escape through the Red Sea. Did the children experience this sacramental privilege of baptism with their parents? 
Or did God discriminate between the parents and their seed at the edge of the Red Sea? Did God maybe take a spiritual temperature of these children to see if they were ready to be part of this baptism? Ah, they don't really believe enough. They don't understand who I am. They're going to stay on this side of the Red Sea. Mom and Dad, you can travel through. Did God exclude them from the promise of salvation and leave them stranded on the edge of the Red Sea? And of course you're going to say, no, that would be ridiculous. To the children belong the same benefits as to their parents. Notice the corporate language in our passage. Paul's saying five times they were all baptized. They all went through the Red Sea. They all drank from the same spiritual drink. And they all ate the same spiritual food. Mom and dad and baby. Just as they all celebrated Passover. At the night when the, the angel of death came over, they, they painted the, the door frame, and, and, and the parents would say, children, you got to come inside, and, and dad would say, and, and the kids would say, well, why? I want to play outside with my friends. No, 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 no. No, you're not going to be playing outside tonight, son. You need to come inside. But why, daddy? Because the angel of death is going to come tonight. God's going to show his wrath against the Egyptians, and God's going to rescue us tonight. And they sat inside together as a family, as a household, enjoying the privilege of God's protection. As we see household language coming into the New Testament, where the father believes, and then the whole household is baptized, because God deals corporately with the home. And, and we would expect no less we know that although Abraham was justified by faith and received the promise of the sign of circumcision, his son Isaac, who um, was not justified by faith at the time of circumcision, received it when he was only a few days old. The promise that Abraham had was given to his son Isaac. We really, in the, in the, New Te in the Old Testament, God saw his people as one holy people, one holy nation, one kingdom of priests, one treasured possession. This is Exodus 19, verse 6. He's not segregating. He's not dividing up the people. Here are the children. Here are the believers. Here are the unbelievers. No, they're just one people of God. And, and we get this language finally in, in 1 Corinthians 7, and I, I connect you to that because this is the language that Paul is using as he's talking about this one corporate identity in chapter 10. We get the same language of holiness, of being a holy people in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 14. And, and I can't spend a lot of time here, but I'll just spend a few moments here. It says this in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 14, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife. And the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Now many people within the Baptist tradition will say to me, well, that's fine, why isn't the husband being baptized? Why, why, why if the children are going to be baptized, why wouldn't the husband be baptized if the husband's being sanctified by his wife? But notice, Paul makes it very clear that the husband is unbelieving. And an unbelieving recipient does not receive the promise of salvation. Bapt believe, repent, and believe, and be baptized. 
That has been always the clarion call. So through the New Testament, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified by his wife. That means that they are now in a, in, a, in a holy union because of his wife or vice versa because of the husband. But this is the point. Otherwise, your children, which are not unbelieving or believing, he doesn't, doesn't modify or doesn't designate their faith status. It says, otherwise your children would be unclean. But now they are holy. The focus of 1 Corinthians 7, as the focus of 1 Corinthians 10, as is the focus of Exodus 19 verse 6, as is the focus of them traveling through the Red Sea, the focus is this people of God set apart, that's the holy, set apart for him, and the holiness includes the holy people includes little children, infants, who throughout the ages have received a sign. In the Old Testament, of course, that was circumcision, showing that they were set apart for God. In the New Testament, we receive the sign of baptism. And that's what we get also in Matthew 19, verse 13 through 15, when, when Jesus uh, receives the little children. It says this, then people brought little children, and the, and the Greek is technon, they're really quite small, infants. Uh, they brought little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them, but the disciples rebuked, Jesus, rebuked them, and Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And then he placed his hand on them. He places his hand on them, and they went from there. And I ask you, what were the parents looking for? They're probably moms and dads. What were they expecting Jesus to do when they brought their little children to him? Well, they were expecting him to lay their hands on them and, and give a blessing. That's what you do. Well, what blessings did they know? They only knew the blessings in the Old Covenant. The blessings given to Abraham. The blessings given to Aaron. You receive the Aaronic blessing here quite regularly, I'm sure. With, with, with the promise being, I mean, God setting his face upon you and being gracious to you and bless you and keep you. Those promises that were given to, to God's people. He, the, the parents wanted that to be to, to their children. And, and Jesus says, yes, of course it belongs to your children. Because your children belong to me. And I love them. This blessing, this baptism, this sacramental privilege belong not only to the parents, but also to the children. And there's no reason to think that the Corinthians would have thought anything different than that. They were all identified as God's people. Now I want to finish with this. There's only one way to respond to this great work. There's one people of God. God has always loved our children the children of believers. And there's only one way to respond to his great works. And that's by faith leading to obedience. This is the rest of the verses. The rest of the verses speak about this faith leading to obedience. It says in verse three, all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank of the spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, here it comes, God was not well pleased for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. So they enjoyed the sacramental privilege, they enjoyed the escape, and they were scattered. Now verse 6, now these things became our examples. Now he's talking to the church, we're talking to you now, here in Owen Sound. Now these things become our examples, 
to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Their hearts were set on evil things. That's a strong warning for the church. This warning goes out not only to parents, but also to children. If you're able to listen to me, children, if you're able to understand what I'm saying, this is a warning to you as it is a warning to me. That we can't lust, that we can't desire the things of this world and, and remove God from them and pursue them at the cost of our faith. No, that's God's call out to you, children, as it is to your parents. Because should we reject this great work of salvation? Should we reject the great exodus? Now we celebrate a bigger exodus, of course. We celebrate the exodus from eternal damnation, the exodus from sin, the exodus from Satan's grip on our lives. We celebrate that exodus into God's glory by faith. That's what we celebrate. But if we do not appropriate that with faith, if we reject that great work of salvation that Christ has done for us, we will be scattered like the Old Testament believers. That's the, that's the call. We are called to respond to the promise. We are called to respond to our baptism. And it's our job as parents then to teach and inform our children at what cost what was the cost, what was the great event that allowed them to live in such blessedness to know that they are free from the, from the wrath of God? How, we have to tell our children that they have to understand what happened at the cross so that they can say, yes, I too believe in this Savior and I will give my life to him in obedience. I will follow in his footsteps. I belong to Christ because he belongs to me. He has chosen me. He has brought me into union with him. Now I need to respond by faith. I need to affirm and appropriate those truths. And so we need to create our, in our homes a sanctuary where Christ is king. We need to create in our schools a sanctuary where Christ is king, where, where the exodus story, the exodus from sin and death is, is shared and, and, and lived out. And we pray. We pray that the grace of God will accompany us in all of this. We pray that the grace of God will flourish in our homes, that our homes will be homes that are excited about this story and live this story, live this drama, live this reality, that we are rescued. We celebrate this in our churches as we proclaim the gospel and as we worship God together. We celebrate this in our schools. We celebrate this in our community. We celebrate the fact that we have been set apart to glory in what God has done for us and to follow him. By faith. See, we're all part of this redemptive work. And the call to the Corinthians is a call to us, is a call to the Old Testament believers. By faith, these promises are lived out. And by faith, they must be lived out in humble obedience. Amen.